All right, we're gonna, we're gonna go ahead and get started. Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, we're definitely pleased with the, the size of the crowd, so thanks for braving the quarter inch of snow to be here with us today. Um, I'd also like to uh, acknowledge and thank our online audience who might not be with us right now, but will be any minute. So we're pleased that they could uh, watch us from homework and school. Um, my name is Joey Kuhn. I'm director of student programs here at the Cato Institute. Cato has uh, a series of opportunities, resources, and programs that we offer to students. This would be one example. We have these monthly student events that we co-host with the DC Forum for Freedom. Uh, next month is February 25th. We're still working out the details, but we can tell you more about that later. We also have a robust internship program. We have a student-focused website called catoncampus.org. If you have any uh, interest in checking out um, research for school or opportunities offered by the Cato Institute or other organizations, I recommend that you go to our website, uh, catooncampus.org. Uh, I'd like to point out one organization with which we work closely, Students for Liberty, the premier libertarian student organization. They have their International Students for Liberty conference coming up February 18th to the 20th. It should be uh, an awesome time. I think so far they have over 400 students registered to attend, uh, about two dozen uh, scholars, activists, journalists, and others who are going to be speaking at the event, including seven uh, Cato Policy staff members. So check out their website, studentsforliberty.org, for more information about that great event. To explain a bit about uh, the format for today's event, uh, our moderator is going to introduce today's speakers and sort of give us a, a broad framework with which to sort of approach this particular topic. Uh, then each panelist is going to have 10 minutes to give some prepared remarks. We'll have about a half an hour uh, to 25 minutes of moderated debate, and then we'll open it up to, to Q&A to our um, audience here and online. With that, I'd like to introduce today's moderator. Jacob Schmuckler is a researcher in our health and welfare, wealth, health and welfare studies department here at the Cato Institute. He graduated from Emory with a degree in economics. And uh, most impressive of all, I think, he is a distinguished alumnus of our Cato internship program. Jacob. Good afternoon. Uh, I'd like to thank all of you for coming out here today uh, to consider a topic that perhaps more than any other encompasses every arena of public policy in a very tangible and direct way. Formally, the topic of the debate is social welfare policy in the United States, but underlying the subject is something that extends well beyond the government programs that traditionally are the subject of a welfare debate, and that's poverty. To discuss these issues, we have three of the most respected minds from across the political spectrum. Starting on the far left is Professor Peter Edelman. He's been a professor at Georgetown University Law School since 1982. He took leave during President Clinton's uh, first term to serve as counselor to HHS Secretary Donna Shalala, and then a sec uh, assistant secretary for planning and evaluation. He resigned from the Clinton administration in protest of the 1996 welfare reform something that I encourage you to ask him about during the Q&A. Professor Edelman has also been Associate Dean of the Law Center at Georgetown and Vice President at the University of Massachusetts. Dr. Isabel Sawhill is a Senior Fellow in Economic Studies at the Brookings Institution, where she serves as Director of the Budgeting for National Priorities Project and Co-Director of the Center on Children and Families. She's written extensively on children, education, the federal budget, poverty, inequality, teen pregnancy, and social welfare policy, including her most recent book with Ron Haskins, Creating an Opportunity Society. 
She has also served as Associate Director of the Office of Management and Budget during the Clinton administration and was a visiting professor at Georgetown University Law School. Michael Tanner is a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute, where he heads the Health and Welfare Studies Department and has written extensively on healthcare, social welfare policy, and social security in publications such as the New York Times, LA Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and USA Today. Under Tanner's direction, Cato launched the Project on Social Security Choice, which is widely considered the leading impetus for transforming the soon-to-be-bankrupt system into a private savings program. Time Magazine calls Tanner one of the architects of the private accounts system, and Congressional Quarterly named him one of the nation's five most influential experts on Social Security. So as I mentioned before, uh, the topic that we're here to discuss is extremely broad. So I wanted to frame the debate a little bit um, before the panelists got up there so they didn't have to take time during their presentation to do so. A discussion of welfare must logically begin by attempting to explain the nature of poverty and the characteristics of those afflicted by it. Without properly defining who we mean by the poor and what we mean by poverty, we cannot understand how and why it is that millions of Americans residing in the most prosperous nation in all of human history can be identified as living in extreme poverty. So how do we define poverty? How many people are affected by it? How has it evolved and been shaped since the introduction of federal welfare during the 1930s and again at the inception of the war on poverty in 1965? How can it still exist in an age of such material abundance today? And perhaps most importantly, what, if anything, can be done to ameliorate it given the circumstances that we're in. It's important to understand, first of all, that the web of government financed programs on the federal, state, and local level comprises more than just cash payments to the poor, which is what most people typically think of as welfare. These transfers either directly through the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Program, or TANF, or through tax credits such as the Earned Income Tax Credit and Child Tax Credit are only a fraction of what some of our panelists would call welfare support or others might call the welfare state. Spending on anti-poverty and welfare support programs is, by some measures, huge in the order of hundreds of billions of dollars. But before we discuss whether that number should be increased or decreased on the margins, we might first ask if this is the proper role of government in the first place, and if so, why? From there, we can assess the relative success of various governmental, philanthropic, and alternative anti-poverty measures and argue for or against their expansion, expansion, modification, or outright elimination. It's not surprising then that given the array of questions we'll be attempting to address and the range of our nation's anti-poverty apparatus, the scope of our debate will extend beyond simply welfare, narrowly defined, to also include education, healthcare, entitlements, free trade, taxes, macroeconomics, microeconomics, unionization, drug policy, the penal code, the legal system, and more. But at its core, our discussion aims to address one of the fundamental questions of both economics and political science. What is the proper relationship among government, its citizens, and civil society, such that individuals at the bottom of the economic ladder are given the greatest opportunity to succeed financially, to maintain a sense of dignity as contributing members to society, and to acquire the skills necessary for a lifetime of personal development, political involvement, and economic growth? And with that, I'd like to turn it over to Professor Edelman. Thank you, Jacob. Um, I'm very glad to be here. Uh, 
I don't visit the Cato Institute very often, and so it's it's a, a pleasure uh, to be here with with uh, two distinguished uh, experts and scholars. Uh, uh, Bell Sawhill and I uh, have have uh, taught together at Georgetown Law Center, and and I've also had occasion, I think, to um, debate or be on the same platform with Mr. Tanner uh, previously. Um, this I'm going to talk really fast. Uh, Ten minutes to talk about this huge subject uh, is 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 difficult, uh, and so I may just barely introduce things that you want to probe more. I want to be very clear at the outset that well, Jacob used the word welfare a number of times uh, in uh, his his introduction. Uh, in, in the American parlance, uh, the word welfare uh, it is typically used, even though it's not what it says in the dictionary, uh, to be uh, aid to uh, families, generally single mother-headed families, with children. Uh, and that is a controversy in and of itself, uh, but a small amount of the entire discussion about what we should be doing about poverty uh, in our country. And so, so we'll come back to that. I just want to make that uh, clear. So uh, who is uh, poor uh, in, in this country? Uh, we, we, we say that 44 million people are poor by the way we measure it. And I'll just say parenthetically, I don't think we measure it in, in a very accurate way. We, we, uh, the measure we have is, is uh, uh, flawed in some ways. Um, the, uh, there are two groups who are disproportionately poor. And so just to have some sense of the demographics here, um, African Americans, I'm, I'm speaking now the groups, that's to say race and ethnicity be one, being one of the groupings. African Americans currently poor at a rate about 24 uh, percent of their population. Latino uh, or Hispanic Americans about the same. Uh, and Native Americans about the same. Uh, and uh, I might say that we made some improvement in the 1990s on that subject. It was considerably higher uh, as we began the 1990s. And the other uh, is single moms. Uh, and, and so if you, the, the numbers there, over 30% of uh, unmarried women, whether they were previously married or not, and, and their uh, children are poor. And again, those numbers have come down, uh, came down uh, in, in the 1990s. So, um, uh, as disproportionate as that is, and I might just r remind you that the overall poverty percentage is about 14 percent now. Uh, whites are, are poor at somewhere between 9 and 10 percent, just to give you that. Um, of course, there are other groups, uh, the, the elderly, the disabled, uh, people, geographic differences, rural, inner city, each of which has its own story uh, and, and its own uh, characteristics. Uh, four problems that I think need special uh, attention uh, in, 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 in our discussion uh, and in public policy. Number one, extreme poverty. Jacob used that word uh, in passing. And, and that, uh, the, that's the jargon term, if you will, for people who have incomes below half the poverty line. Uh, below about uh, $8,500 uh, to, to uh, $9,000 for a family of three. Uh, below about uh, eleven to eleven thousand five hundred dollars for a family of four. Uh, in other words, double those numbers, and you have the the level of what the poverty line is in this country. Um, 
I, I think it's an astonishing number to tell you that, according to our census numbers, these are government numbers, 19 million people uh, live in extreme poverty. Um, it was 12.6 million at the beginning of the last uh, decade. Uh, and before the recession, it was 15.6 million. So there has been an increase in the recession. But think of just trying to, to survive uh, on an income that's that low. And, and uh, we don't uh, talk about it very much. Uh, this is the place where the question about income support for families with children comes most into play. Uh, because uh, we have now, uh, all over the country, large numbers of people whose only income comes from food stamps. Six million people live only on food stamps in our country. Uh, in the past, many of those families would have had welfare, uh, now called temporary assistance for needy families, would have had that uh, as well. So six million people have an income that's at about the thir a third of the poverty line. And that's, that, again, I think is an astonishing fact. Second group, just to, to under, identify uh, what our concerns are, the working poor. Uh, because um, we find, uh, if we look at it, that 61% uh, 61 61 of the income of people who are poor, again, census numbers, comes from working. Uh, working part of the year, um, in some few cases, if they're below the poverty line uh, all year, um, and uh, not being able to earn enough even to get out of poverty. And as we go above the poverty line where people still have big trouble making ends meet, we find that we have a large number of people who are working as hard as they possibly can and just can't make uh, ends meet. So that's a second category, if you will, to, uh, if you will, to focus on. Uh, thirdly, uh, young people. Um, and this is particularly connected to issues of race, uh, to uh, issues of, of people living in the uh, inner city. Uh, we have now uh, something on the order of 3 million young people between the ages of 18 and 24, uh, disproportionately African-American, Latino, who are not in school, do not have a job, and have been in that situation for a year or more very, very deeply uh, troubling. Um, and finally, a group that I would uh, want us to concentrate on in discussion and in, in our uh, efforts would be, which overlaps with what I just said, would be urban concentrated uh, poverty. Uh, the, the, uh, those who live uh, in, in the inner city. And this is where the debate turns very quickly political. If you think about where we have the kind of big arguments about why people are poor, very often uh, what, what in fact people have in mind as their image uh, is the inner city uh, African American family uh, or person. Um, why do we have so much po um, poverty and, and uh, so much uh, disparity in incomes? And I think those are two uh, separate income, uh, two separate issues. Uh, the question of, of how those at the top have, have uh, added so spectacularly to their uh, incomes, especially over the last uh, 30 years. Well, basically, um, changes in the job market, changes in our economy, uh, the, the increase in the number of low-wage uh, jobs uh, over the, since the 1970s, and 
Uh, it's so that the amount of poverty we have, and particularly the amount of near poverty that we have, is very much connected to uh, what's happened in our economy. And the other is changes in family structure. Uh, we have more um, single mother-headed, female-headed families uh, than we had, uh, and that's certainly a phenomenon because remember that number that single moms with kids have are in poverty, over 30% of them in poverty. Uh, race and gender are still factors in who is poor in this country, um, but there has been a change in the composition of poverty. Um, less elderly, more children, a uh, very major thing over the last uh, 40 years. The, uh, the remedies in general, and I'm going to run out of time, um, at the center of it, good jobs, uh, easy to say, uh, hard, to, hard to achieve, but important. And if we're not going to have enough wages from work, we can talk about this more, we need wage supplements. We need to add the income. Secondly, education, this is the heart of it, jobs and education. There are a lot of other things, but, but that's what's, what's going to achieve success uh, for people to, to be in the American uh, mainstream. And then what I call income equivalence, and here I'm going really fast because I'm calling healthcare an income equivalent, and it has its own reason for being something that we pay attention to, that we get coverage uh, one way or another for everybody. I, of course, am a supporter of the legislation that was enacted last year in the country. 30 seconds left. Child care, housing, going to college, all of that, and then a, 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 an adequate safety net for people who are outside the mainstream who need help, and of course that's a subject for um, a, lot of, a lot of discussion. A lot of both ends, last long sentence. Uh, that is to say that we have responsibilities for helping people with income here in the here and now and for the future, that's the education. Public responsibility, government has to play a role. Private responsibility, civic, in our communities, caring adults. Structural problems in the economy, individual help to people. Public and civic responsibility and personal responsibility because at the end of the day, if people don't take responsibility for themselves, they're not going to get to where, uh, to, to be at the maximum place that they can achieve. Thank you. This doesn't bend. I always knew libertarians were inflexible. <laughs> uh, it's very nice to be here and uh, very nice to hear my old friend uh, Peter Edelman talk about these issues. I will not go over uh, the poverty data any further. Uh, like Peter, I'm concerned about the poverty in, in the U.S. Uh, we do have quite a lot of it, and especially now. Uh, I see some of my uh, uh, team from Brookings back there, uh, and I don't think I see the co-author of a paper we did this year and last year that projects forward what the poverty rate is going to look like as the unemployment rate hangs high. So I'll just add that thought, and you can get the paper if you're interested, because uh, the poverty rate is going up rapidly now. It goes up a little bit with a lag after the unemployment rate goes up, and it will stay high for, I would say, the rest of this uh, decade. 
But I really want to focus on something else, uh, another concept here that goes beyond poverty and beyond inequality. It's a concept that we, that we talked about a lot uh, in the book that Jacob uh, alluded to that I wrote with Rod Haskins called Creating an Opportunity Society. And in that book, we focus on opportunity in America. What are your chances of being able to move up the ladder? Now, uh, and we argue that a shift from a focus just on poverty to a focus on opportunity would be useful. And why do we think that? First of all, opportunity is a concept that resonates with the public uh, much, much better than the concept of poverty. And uh, there's polling data on this. I don't have time to go into that, but uh, if you want to talk about it, uh, we can. Uh, secondly, by focusing on the process by which people either do or do not achieve success over their life, I think we get more at the causes and uh, problems that underlie why some people are poor and some are not. We focus um, less on symptoms and more on what's driving all of this. And uh, that, I think, is in itself uh, helpful. And we're doing some new research at Brookings, which will take that uh, as its lens. So uh, you know, the, the other thing about the poverty data uh, is it's a snapshot at a, you know, one point in time. And you could be poor this month and then get a job uh, next month and immediately be out of poverty. So uh, one problem with the usual census data that Peter laid out is it doesn't get at this uh, dynamic. Uh, so what are the uh, facts on opportunity in America? We believe in the United States that we're an exceptional nation and that one of the ways in which we're exceptional is that we have a great deal of opportunity. You know, it's rags to riches in a generation. It's that uh, narrative that's in our history and in our culture. And if you look at attitudes of the U.S. public and compare them to attitudes of Europeans, for example, you see very uh, big uh, differences on this front. Now, the facts are a little more surprising, and we lay out the facts in some research we've done and in the book. And the facts are that we have less opportunity uh, to climb people to climb the ladder uh, in the U.S. than we think, and less than in some other advanced uh, countries. But uh, what do we do um, in terms of uh, policy? Uh, let me turn to uh, the theme again that Peter laid out at the end, which is a theme of our book as well, and that is uh, we do need government programs and government policy in this arena, but government can't do it all. We also need personal responsibility. And a particular theme in our book is that we should be targeting assistance to those who are helping themselves. We should give them an assist up the ladder, but we should uh, very much encourage people uh, to do some of that climbing uh, themselves. And the three pillars of our strategy are education, work, and family. Uh, on the, um, we also show some data that if you do just three things, if an individual does just three things, first of all, at least graduates from high school and hopefully goes beyond. Secondly, works full time at whatever wage. And third, 
um, delays childbearing until one is either married or in a stable long-term relationship. If you do those three things, then the poverty rate sinks to under 2%. So uh, that then leads to our focus as a matter of policy on those uh, three uh, areas. Uh, on education, uh, we say you've got to focus on the entire educational uh, spectrum from pre-K all the way through post-secondary. Uh, we're very much in favor of more resources going to uh, pre-K programs, high-quality early childhood programs. Uh, we think they have a track record of success, not that they couldn't be improved. In fact, the latest research and evidence on Head Start is that it's not performing so well. But um, there are other programs that have performed much better. Uh, K through 12, better teachers in the classroom, uh, high standards, uh, innovation through charter schools, that kind of thing. Uh, Post-secondary, uh, financial assistance for those who have shown the uh, ability and desire to go on to post-secondary but don't have the means, and um, a lot uh, better counseling of kids from dis less advantaged families to help them understand that financial assistance will be there if they prepare in high school because too many people uh, give up uh, way too early. Uh, on the work front, uh, like Peter, uh, we find that low wages, especially for men, uh, are a big part of the problem. There has been wage stagnation or even wage declines in inflation-adjusted terms at the bottom of the skill ladder, and those low wages make it very difficult to uh, support a family. So we uh, call for everybody uh, to work, but we believe in supplementing their wages through the Earned Income Tax Credit, uh, providing childcare assistance to single mothers, uh, and those kinds of programs. Uh, we also call for more career and technical education and uh, more uh, help through community colleges and that kind of thing. Um, the family, uh, this is an area where government, I think, has less of a role to play, but uh, there are effective uh, programs for preventing teenage pregnancy. Uh, there are um, good um, home visiting programs that could help here. And uh, much of what we call for in our chapter on the family has now been adopted uh, or enacted uh, by the Congress. Uh, civil society has a much bigger role to play there, uh, faith-based institutions and uh, other uh, nonprofits. Uh, I think that um, I want to now talk about a caveat uh, on this agenda, this policy agenda. The caveat, first of all, is it doesn't help to say to people, you must work full time when there are no jobs. So during a recession of the sort we have right now, when the unemployment rate is over 9%, I think we really do need a safety net, even an enhanced safety net. And when I say safety net, I'm talking about those programs like food stamps and like TANF that are basically unconditional assistance to people that are down on their luck. But I would argue they should be temporary, uh, particularly any enhancements should be temporary. And indeed, the Congress did uh, enhance TANF and enhance uh, the food stamp program 
uh, during the recession, although those supports are going to go away now. And one concern I have is given that we expect these poverty rates to remain very high and the unemployment rates to remain very high, I'm not sure uh, we shouldn't uh, keep uh, an enhanced safety net in place until the economy gets back to normal. Um, second um, caveat is that um, uh, oh well, the second caveat I've already I've already talked about it's that if wages are too low, then we need to supplement them. Uh, with the earned income tax credit and, and other things. So I think I am running out of time here, and I think I'll leave it at there. Uh, thanks so much for coming today or for um, listening or watching if you're out there. Well, thank you all very much for coming out, and I want to thank Isabel and Peter for coming uh, daring to cross the threshold of the Cato Institute. Uh, they did not turn to a pillar of salt. Uh, so, uh, we're, we're, no, actually, I'm thrilled to have them here. They, uh, their scholarship is, is outstanding. It's uh, always on my desk or in my bookcases. Uh, I've uh, read their stuff very carefully, even if I don't necessarily agree. But let me start off with a quick area of agreement. That is, like them, I'm very concerned about the amount of poverty in this country. I think it's a, a disgrace that we have the level of poverty in this country that we do, which is why I wish we actually had a public policy that did something about it. We spent, have right now 122 different federal anti-poverty programs. That is, if you broadly define them as programs that either in their definition say, this is an anti-poverty program, or that are means tested and therefore are, have their benefits directed to people with low incomes. If you take that broad definition, we have 122 different programs. And last year, combined, those programs spent $591 billion. And yet, we still have the poverty levels we have today. In fact, you know, if you actually just wanted to sort of look at it broadly, uh, we spent somewhere around $15,000 poor per person, or poor, per poor person uh, in this country, uh, which is more than the poverty level. So theoretically, we shouldn't have any poor people if we were doing everything right. Clearly, we're not. And in fact, if you want to go back to 1965, when Lyndon Johnson declared war on poverty, if you take this broad definition of anti-poverty programs, we have spent in this country in excess of $13 trillion at the federal level fighting poverty, and another couple of trillion at the state and local level, and yet still have the poverty levels we have today. In fact, poverty levels have been substantially unchanged since about 1968. Prior to that, I should say that they were coming down fairly regularly. In fact, if you want to go back to the 1930s, about 75 percent of Americans lived in poverty. And we brought it down to the levels uh, between 15 and 20 percent, and that is sort of flattened out at 19, in 1968 and hasn't moved much since then. So one could suggest that we're not getting a lot of bang for our buck uh, in spending on anti-poverty programs. 
Even worse, we may actually be creating more harm than good. Uh, we, if you look at some of the unintended consequences of these programs, you do find that they are, they are out there. You find, for example, that we may be encouraging out-of-wedlock birth. You know, basically, we create a poverty program in this country that says we will give you money on two conditions. You don't work and you don't get married. Uh, so it's not surprising. Now, we do have some, some work requirements now. We sort of have made some changes to that, but still, a lot of benefits are not conditioned on that. So we will give you benefits based on the fact that you don't have a job and that you, you're not married. Uh, it should not surprise us, therefore, that we've seen uh, an explosion of out-of-wedlock birth that roughly corresponds with the rise in welfare spending. Uh, in fact, of the, uh, there's been about 16 studies, uh, about 13 of them found a statistically significant correlation between the availability of welfare benefits and the level of welfare benefits and out-of-wedlock births. You also find uh, a diminution of work effort uh, when you have cash available for not working. Uh, you know, look, poor people are poor. They're not stupid. And they also, under, they also they understand if you tell them we'll give you a check if you don't work, they're not going to work. You know, the studies have shown that most poor people actually want to work. If you survey the poor, survey people on welfare, they by and large will tell you that they would really like to work. And then you survey them again and say, well, have you been looking for work? And by and large, they say no. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a discouragement factor that sets in. There's a lack of jobs in certain areas, uh, particularly the inner city, which is a real problem. There's a lack of skills that match up with the jobs, and we'll talk about, we can talk about that. Uh, but there's also the simple fact that, in many cases, the com combination of welfare benefits, if you collect TANF and food stamps and Medicaid and housing and additional the other benefits that can be on top of that, it's better than the low-wage job that you might be able to get if your skills are minimal. Uh, so we create all these sorts of problems while we're doing it. What I would suggest is all this stems from the fact that too much of our anti-poverty policy is actually based on the idea of trying to make poverty more comfortable rather than trying to get people out of poverty. Uh, now, you know, I'm not saying that poverty is comfortable, but if you look at what we're actually doing, it's to find people who are poor and give them a little bit more money so that we raise their income slightly and they're not in as much poverty or as much discomfort as they were before. Instead, I think, an effective anti-poverty policy would be one that focused actually on getting more people out of poverty. And here I would say there are four real keys. Number one is education. And here I'm in agreement, although I would suggest that the answer is not that we have more federal spending on education. Now, we've actually, if you, uh, since 1970, increased spending on education in this country, federal spending on education, in real terms, by 188 percent, and yet we've seen no increase in test scores over that time. So we're spending more, not getting more. Instead of pouring more money into our current government monopoly school system that doesn't seem to be doing a very good job, instead we should create more competition and give more control to parents uh, to just choose which school they're going to go to. Why, you know, D.C spends more per student than any other school system in the country, and yet the results are terrible. Now, why we should have done away with a program that actually gave money to poor parents so that they could send their kids to a better school mystifies me. Second, 
we need more jobs, again, an area of agreement. But again, I would suggest that this is not something that the government can do very well. The government does not create jobs very well when it tries to create jobs through stimulus spending or through infrastructure spending and so on. It basically simply borrows money, therefore taking money out of the future economy and eliminating jobs that are going to be there in the future because it's to be the borrowing or taxing, and borrowing is just deferred taxing, taking that money out of the economy. Uh, instead, what we need to be looking at is deregulating and removing the tax burden on businesses now, particularly in areas uh, where there's high unemployment so that we can create more jobs. Third, we need to deal with the out-of-wedlock birth problem. Uh, I think that, again, is a question of dealing with the incentives created by the current welfare system, but also the fact that too many of our government policies eliminate the possibilities of marriage, particularly in the inner city. Uh, particularly, I'm thinking here of our drug laws. Uh, in D.C., for example, one out of every four African-American men has a, a criminal record as a result, largely as a result of the drug laws. This removes them in many ways from the marriage pool, uh, makes it more difficult for them to get jobs, makes it more difficult for women to marry men with jobs and so on. Uh, again, you have government policies here which are contributing to the problem. And then finally, I think we need to make it easier for the poor to save. Uh, one of the problems we, we do know that wealth, as opposed to income, is, is very important uh, in getting out of poverty in the long term. Uh, yet we have policies here which sort of disproportionately punish the idea of savings. Uh, you know, if we give someone a, a check uh, who's on welfare today and they go out and they spend that check on a new pair of sneakers, that's fine. If they put that money in the bank, to save so their kids can go to school someday, we're going to take away their welfare benefits. Uh, it's sort of a, a very perverse set of incentives. Uh, and so I also suggest that we need to do things, look at things like the payroll tax, uh, where we force uh, low-income people into the Social Security system to save, even though we know that their rate of return is far less than what they would get from private investment. Uh, when we talk about private accounts for Social Security, the people who would benefit most from that are people who cannot save today, and that is low-income individuals. And in short, let me summarize by just saying we have tried the idea of giving money to the poor, and that hasn't been very successful. I think what we need to do is stop worrying about what we're going to do for short-term income and start worrying about how we can create prosperity. You know, poverty is the natural state of man. People say, how do, we, how do people come become poor? Well, we're all born poor, sort of naked and hungry. You know, poverty is the natural state. What we really need to stop worrying about is what causes poverty and think about what causes prosperity. And that is free markets, low taxes, low regulation, and the freedom for people to make their own way in the world. Thank you very much. Um, appreciate all, all your presentations. They were, uh, they were great. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of questions uh, coming from the audience, but for the next 25 or 30 minutes, we're going to have a little moderated Q&A, and I'd like to kick that off, I guess, by opening up the floor to any of the presenters who would like to respond to the other presenters. Um, if there was anything in someone's presentation that you want to directly respond to, um, now's the time. And anyone? Yeah, I might say a few things. Uh, no, no, go ahead. Um, the, the, one of the major points uh, that Michael Tanner made is that we've been encouraging uh, out-of-wedlock birth uh, with welfare. Um, 
first of all, uh, let me say that because you would ask me anyway, uh, that we did need to reform welfare. Um, and uh, we just didn't do it in, in the best way. Uh, we had uh, over 14 million people uh, on what was then called Aid to Families with Dependent Children uh, in 1994. That was too many because uh, there's a fundamental point that I think all of us agree on, uh, although we may disagree about the means, which is that it's better to have a job. Uh, and uh, essentially, the point of welfare ought to be as a safety net thing, and as Bell Sawhill said, uh, in a time of prosperity, I'm, I, I'm not misquoting you right. too badly, uh, we should have a minimal uh, safety net, just what we absolutely have to have for, for, and we can talk about the details, but essentially, people who uh, can work ought to be working. Um, so uh, that situation uh, is, is uh, fundamentally changed. Um, we have, we're spending uh, a total of about $27 billion, federal and state uh, combined, on cash on welfare, actually not cash payments, because uh, less than half of that money is going to, to cash payments. States can choose uh, what they, they want to do. Now, uh, Michael Tanner said we're spending $591 billion on poor people. Um, actually, if you take that apart, the biggest chunk of that is in the health sector, Medicaid. Medicaid. And that's not money that's going into poor people's pockets. Uh, it has an income equivalent, as I said before. Uh, so, you know, $13 trillion since 1965. I, I can't resist telling you how many millions of dollars I've made since 1965. <laughs> when you add up, I, believe me, uh, <laughs> and you add all that up and... Hmm. Um, so the, the welfare, the, the cash program has become, uh, has shrunk tremendously. Uh, it's, it's gone down from uh, covering 61% of poor children in 1995 to 22% in 2008. Um, we have uh, 12 states that have payments that are under 12% of the poverty line. Uh, the state of Wyoming, for example, in 2008 had 281, um, 281 families in the entire state on welfare, 4% of the poor children in the state of Wyoming. So um, you can see that it, it's not much of a factor now. Uh, and, and I just want to put that uh, in that, in that uh, context. Uh, we can have a longer discussion about, uh, because I think we all agree that we want to end, uh, re greatly reduce uh, the number of births that are taking place out of wedlock. Um, but uh, I strongly uh, question the hypothesis that it's cash payments to, to single parent families that are causing uh, in, in the year 2011 uh, out of wedlock births. I was actually going to say something quite similar. Um, I used to give a talk that uh, had some of the same themes that uh, Mike just articulated about welfare being anti-family and anti-work. But, you know, that's what we did try to reform in uh, 1996. 
and we might not have done a perfect job of it, but I think, as Peter just said, uh, it's made uh, a big difference. That doesn't mean we couldn't still work on trying to craft policies that are more pro-family and pro-work, which is really what um, our book tries to do. And so I think we are in agreement that it is bad to design policies that encourage behaviors that, are no, that don't lead to self-sufficiency and uh, good lives for people. Um, but we are working on that. And I was going to make the same point about an awful lot of that big number is, is health care. And uh, it is useful to try to break it down. In our book, we do try to break it down into a little more detail. Uh, it does sound very dramatic when you say we're spending $15,000 per poor person. But think about what would happen if you cut off all every dollar of assistance the moment someone went from being a dollar under the poverty line to a dollar over the poverty line. Uh, it would create horrible disincentives. Great. So uh, therefore, most of these programs, uh, even if they're means tested, uh, are scaled with income. And so they go to, some money goes to a lot of people uh, above the poverty line. And the poverty line in the United States is very low. Um, uh, the, you know, the, your, your data about 75% of us were poor back in the 1930s or whatever date you used is exactly right. But that's because the poverty line uh, has not been adjusted upwards as uh, the country has gotten wealthier. So um, that alone uh, reduces uh, the number of people in poverty. I think the changes in, uh, Peter talked about this, the changes in family structure have been um, one of the factors that have worked against everything else that we've been trying to do uh, to reduce poverty. And, uh, you know, poverty rates among single mothers are five times what they are in two-parent families. And so if single parenthood, and particularly single parenthood amongst less educated women, which is where it tends to be most common, uh, continues to increase, uh, that's a huge problem. And um, I, I could go into much more there. I was struck by the commonality here on um, the pillars, what I call the pillars. Uh, my, my um, Ron's and my uh, agenda has a, uh, is a stool with three legs. And Mike put a fourth leg on, so I guess it's a chair now, Mike, uh, which is savings. And you know, that may be more stable, actually, than the stool. So I, I have no problem with that at all. Uh, just very quickly, I, I do think, first of all, I do think that the, the welfare reform did make some improvements in terms of both the family situation and the work incentives. Unfortunately, it only affected four uh, welfare programs out of the I say 122 or however many you want to count, it, including some of the large ones were not included uh, in those requirements, including Medicaid and food stamps. Uh, so you, you do have a lot of uh, expenditures that are not, do not have those family and work friendly uh, requirements that are part of them. Uh, uh, so I, so I, I would just, just say it still have a lot of programs out there that I think have all the wrong, wrong incentives in them uh, as far as it goes. 
Uh, well, as Dr. Sahil said, there is a lot of commonality between their responses. So to avoid that, I want to kick off with, uh, <laughs> with this question. And you know, since we are at Cato, I, I think the people upstairs would really appreciate my asking uh, to all of the panelists, um, why do you think the federal government does uh, need to get involved in welfare in the first place? What is the justification for their involvement? And really, one of the most popular questions in all of politics uh, today, what constitutional authority is granted to the federal government to establish and maintain this wide array of, uh, of programs? I'll leave the constitutional question to the lawyer on my left here. Uh, but the, uh, I think the reason that we want some federal involvement is because if you left this to states and local communities, every local community or state would have an incentive, speaking of incentives, uh, to keep their uh, assistance as meager as possible in the hopes that uh, poor people wouldn't want to live in that community or that state. And uh, furthermore, it would put uh, excessive burdens on those states or communities that are, the, that are the poorest in the nation. It wouldn't allow for any uh, reallocation of resources from a wealthy state like Connecticut to a poor state like Mississippi. Uh, on the uh constitutional side, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on that. It's not to say that there aren't some votes on the Supreme Court for, for a greatly uh, narrower constitution. Uh, and a major question as we watch the health care uh, law in litigation is whether, uh, I might say, whether there are four votes or five votes uh, uh, to, to declare that law unconstitutional. Um, basically, uh, the, the power uh, is the spending power uh, that you can attach a certain, as, at least insofar as state policy is concerned, uh, that you can attach certain conditions to spending, uh, and, and uh, if people accept it, or the states accept it, then, then uh, uh, it's, it's constitutional power, and that goes back to the New Deal, and we could go into the details about it. And then the commerce power has become much broader uh, in its interpretation uh, over the two-plus centuries, but again, all of that is a much longer conversation. I would just uh, add that uh, if you look at the big spending, uh, the 122 programs include, although not to quarrel with the number of the 591, but uh, a lot of small uh, programs, and some of those we frankly don't need. Uh, and, and we're going to see uh, some of those possibly disappearing, or some of them, uh, like the, the salmon example and the regulation that the president <laughs> used the other night, are, are a matter of consolidation and, and uh, pulling things uh, together. But, you know, the big ticket items here are things where, Bell, you said this, but I want to under, underscore it. Uh, you can't, if you believe that this form of assistance is needed from some public policy source, uh, you, the states can't afford it. It's as, it's as simple uh, as that. Uh, are they going to run a, a Medicaid system? Well, then you get into a big debate about whether we have to have Medicaid at all, and, and uh, I believe very strongly that we're not going to get health care uh, for lower-income people. I happen to think we need uh, the, the kind of, of uh, legislation that we enacted last year for somewhat higher-income people as well. Uh, you're just not going to get there if you don't have uh, federal involvement. Some of this is an artifact of the low-wage problem. So uh, we have housing vouchers. 
we have public housing. That's a, that goes back to the New Deal. But housing vouchers go back to the 1970s. They help one out of four people who have, they only reach one out of four people who have an income qualification. What is that all about? Well, it c connects back to the, the income coming in to the household and the fact that we've had uh, a great deal of inflation somewhat damped down in the last couple of years, certainly, in the cost of housing. Uh, and and uh, lower income people, if you look at government figures, uh, lower, with, with uh, the percentage of income being expected for housing being 30% of income, a person with a minimum wage job can't afford a two-bedroom apartment anywhere in the country. I mean, some small places within states, but in any state overall in the country. So, uh, and we could go through uh, a number of other areas uh, in the same way. So uh, we need to have, as a matter of federalism, if you will, and I don't mean bigger federal government uh, in some ideological way, but it, just in the, in the, in the uh, collaborative functioning of states and, and the national government, uh, these key national programs. The Earned Income Tax Credit, which is another large one in this panoply. I think it's the largest right now, uh, largest anti-poverty program. Yeah, yeah. After Medicaid. Oh, after Medicaid, yeah, yes. Yeah, but it's it's kind of in tandem with food stamps in terms of we're over $40 billion right. in both right. of them, something like that. Um, in any case, uh, that's a that's directly relates to low-wage work. It's an income supplement for people who have low-wage jobs. You can't expect the states to do that. It's just the, the fiscal fiscal capacity is not there. Mike, do you want well, to let, let me quarrel with, with that. The reason why the fiscal capacity isn't there is that the state taxpayers are sending their taxes to Washington, so it's not available for the states to tax. Uh, if, we simply, if we had sort of a turn back where both the taxing authority, taxing authority and the responsibility were at the state level, they'd be, the same amount of money exists, it's, uh, unless we're going to borrow it at the federal level, which states can't do. Uh, this, you know, the same amount of money exists in society. It's just a question of which level is taxing it and spending it. And that brings me to a broader point, which is in terms of the overall level of charity in society. Uh, the reality is, there's, and there's several good studies out there, even going back into the, uh, into the uh, 19th century, that shows that uh, the overall level of giving to the poor in society is relatively constant. Now, I'm adjusting, you have to adjust for income over time. But if you take that into account and hold that, that constant, the overall level in society is relatively constant. What changes is the mix between public and private. And as the government does more, private charity does less. And then when government does less, when we cut back on welfare and so on, private giving increases. So that the overall level uh, stays relatively constant in society. And what we're just changing is the mix. So I would submit that if the government got out of the charity business, and government charity is sort of an oxymoron in, in itself, you know, I mean, charity by its definition, is something that's done voluntarily out of your out of kindness and out of love for your fellow man. If you actually go to the biblical roots, the word charity is the word agape in Greek, which means love. Uh, government, by definition, is force and coercion. Uh, there's nothing charitable about taking someone's money by force and giving it to someone else. That, that's not charity. But if you, if you actually got government out of the charity business, I submit that there'd be plenty of charity at the private level to, to make up the slack. And I think also the evidence suggests 
that for a lot of reasons, private charity is more effective at dealing with the root causes of poverty because they can deal with it on an individual level. Uh, they can get into the individual causes. They can deal with the spiritual causes and the psychological causes of poverty that have a lot that, you know, government giving people a check is never going to reach. Can I uh, follow up on this uh, charitable contributions uh, notion? Uh, I mean, I do think that it would be valuable to have more discussion of that. And I have gotten interested recently in an idea that I uh, talked about in a short piece for Politico and uh, is being now talked about uh, on the Huffington Post. And uh, the proposal that I put forward was to double the, chair the deduction for charitable giving. Uh, and uh, I only want to do that temporarily. And my reason for doing it temporarily is that uh, right now uh, there are a lot of wealthy people in this country who have a lot of money and they're not spending it. And we need them to spend it because that will create output and jobs. Uh, but this proposal uh, would uh, lower, further lower taxes on the rich. So, of course, a lot of uh, liberals don't like it. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it would do very much what I think you're advocating for here. Uh, it would create jobs. One out of every 10 jobs in this country is in the nonprofit sector, interestingly enough. And it would do so in a very non-bureaucratic way that allows the choice to be uh, the individuals. So, Mike, what do you think? Actually, I think that's worth exploring. I, I've looked in the past at the idea of a uh, up to a specific now dollar amount, uh, dollar for dollar credit against charitable contributions rather than a deduction, and an offsetting reduction and then in, in government spending a, uh, programs at some level to make up for that to see if the two balance out. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, let's say if you, you know, somebody, if you won $10,000 in the lottery tomorrow, and then because you felt guilty about it or something, you, you would decide you wanted to give that $10,000 to the poor, the chances are you would write a check to charity. You wouldn't write a check to the IRS, even though they take contributions. They uh, do. I made one recently. I want you to know that I put my money where my mouth was on being a fiscally responsible person. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really interesting. I just, I'm sorry this is a little of a digression, but I, yeah. I went online and I gave money to the U.S. Treasury. Gave them a hundred dollars <laughs> to pay down the federal debt. Is that to pay down the federal debt? I I, I appreciate that. <laughs> You'll thank me when your children are absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, during that that discussion, we hit on a number of points that I wanted to uh, to kind of get into. But um, I, I let's I guess I'll just start from. Uh, from this one, uh, a lot of these programs that you mentioned, EITC, Earned Income Tax Credit, Child Tax Credit, um, a lot of these that, that as, you, as your income goes up, the benefits go down, um, they have a built-in disincentive to uh, raise your income and, and to get married. And, and it's not to say that people don't want to get wealthier, as you said, but when you add on the fact that uh, your, your income tax rates are going up, plus you're losing benefits, it can create a very, very high effective marginal tax rate. And that is something that's intrinsic in the program and kind of uh, difficult to get around. How would you address those issues in designing uh, these kinds of programs? 
Uh, you can't get rid of that disincentive entirely unless you break the bank, break, break the federal budget by uh, making the programs universal. Uh, but you can design them in a way that um, minimizes the disincentives. In fact, in uh, 2000, when uh, uh, President Bush proposed a $1,000 um, child tax credit, uh, some of us at Brookings looked at the uh, proposal and said um, there's a problem because this leaves out all of the people um, who have incomes below about thirty, forty thousand dollars a year because they don't pay any income taxes and so they're not going to get the the child tax credit. And we argued therefore for making it at least partially refundable, um, so you get the money even if you don't have any positive tax liability. And uh, in the process of designing it, we actually reduced the sharply uh, some of the disincentives that existed in the current EITC. We particularly, uh, there was a study done at the Urban Institute, not by me, but by someone else, who showed that we reduced the marriage penalty about as much as anything that was done in that law. And, and I would just add that while there are disin dis disincentives, they're kind of at the margins. I mean, there certainly are people who take a look who have a low-wage job and they get the EITC and uh, they, they say, hmm, I don't want that raise. Actually, not a lot. And, and if, you, if you're moving to better yourself and you get a considerably better job, it's just not an issue. So I, I think... It, it's really something you already said. It's real, but it's not that huge a problem. There's also academic research that shows that the EITC on net is a uh, rewards work and encourages work and yes. has encouraged work. Yes, absolutely. You have to have a job to get it. Right. I, I would say, though, when you talk about being at the margins, you're talking about if you consider the EITC sort of in isolation. If you start bringing in the other programs, particularly now, one of the concerns is with the way the tax credits are set up under the new health care law, that the, the marginal tax rate for getting uh, improving is significant, yeah. and that that really you really start to create a disincentive at that. Yes, point. and so we do need to. This gets down into the weeds. It really does. Get into uh, the weeds. But we do need to look at these cliffs and 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 to look at all of the, the uh, areas where things cut off and and somebody would lose a lot uh, of help. That that that's an issue. Um, on the topic of safety nets, that was one of the terms that um, I think everyone used throughout their presentation. Um, from across the political spectrum, the far left uh, all the way to you know, Milton Friedman and Charles Murray, uh, they've suggested something like a guaranteed basic income uh, as, as, as a form of welfare. And I think it kind of gets to the philosophical divide. Do, do you want the support to be a very highly means-tested program that is essentially uh, redistributive, or should it be some kind of a, a, a flatter um, Sort of, sort of supplement, and then you get rid of a lot of the the, the programs that are intended to um, fulfill that 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 goal. Uh, how would how would uh, some of the panelists respond to the idea of a guaranteed income? Well, uh, I don't know that I would call it that, <laughs> but, but um, I, I'm really worried about having 19 million people uh, in this country who are. Uh, have incomes below half the poverty line. And even when you put in some of the public benefits that, that aren't counted uh, for, for purposes of the poverty line, you still got big numbers there. I mean, the, the only income floor that we have that's across, that's almost across the board is food stamps. Uh, 
all the way across Europe, which of course is a dirty word when you come to uh, talking in the United States. Uh, you know, it's all Sweden. You know, um, they have a, a, an income baseline that's constructed in that way, and then there's generally a second tier that's work related. I mean, that's what the Brits do, uh, and uh, the Brits in the before the recession, anyway, had a great deal of success working on reducing poverty, essentially by having the equivalent of the earned income tax credit uh, beefed up. And so they were creating incentives to go to work rather than be uh, on the dole, and it worked. They cut, they cut poverty uh, in half. So uh, I think that you always have to be thinking, and this is the difference between maybe a, a kind of uh, previous European way of looking at it, I'll call it that, is I think you always have to be looking at the intersection with work in, in what you design. Uh, but that said, we have so many people who for one reason or another uh, have a, a serious uh, issue, particularly in a recession, that I would have an income floor myself. Low, but I would have one. I, I think the, the, the idea that, that Friedman and Murray have before there's sort of a negative income tax style approach or a flat uh, dollar amount approach uh, in Murray's case uh, is sort of an economist's dream welfare program. Uh, all the numbers add up perfectly. Uh, and you know, I, I talked to Charles about this, and it's, you know, it's, it's the type of thing you sit down on paper and you can make it work. But in the political world, I think it falls apart very quickly because what you would have is, and Murray, I believe, comes out with about $10,000 per poor, poor uh, family. Uh, well, so it won't take long before someone says, I'm more compassionate than you. Let's make it 11000 and then 12000 and then $13,000. And it, and it will ratchet up very quickly. And you'll, the, the benefits you thought you were going to get out of it, I think, disappear, and it becomes much more expensive than the current program. He had it sort of balanced out exactly. He could take the current amount of spending, and it all balanced out. I think very quickly uh, it, it would rapidly uh, get more expensive. And as it became more generous, it would exacerbate the other problems, the work disincentives, the, the disincentives on marriage and so on. Uh, you know, if you're going to have a floor, we talked, you know, one of the concerns Peter, you mentioned was this race to the bottom. I want to race to the bottom. I, I think if you're going to have a floor, it should be a very minimal floor uh, that you're saying. It should not be a floor that's generous enough to, to discourage people from, from, uh, from getting, uh, from the incentive to go out and raise themselves. Another one of the uh, most popular topics today to talk about is income inequality. So I was wondering if each of you might want to offer some words on how income inequality, uh, what contributes to it, uh, what's exacerbated it in recent years, uh, and, and what kind of an impact it has on this uh, poverty uh, discussion? I, I think poverty and inequality are two different things. I am very concerned about poverty. I want to eliminate, or at least radically reduce, I don't know if we can ever eliminate, but to certainly do my best to fight poverty. I couldn't care less about income inequality. I don't care how rich some people get if we're raising people out of poverty. In fact, if theoretically tomorrow we were to double everybody's income, we would lift an awful lot of people out of poverty, and we'd increase inequality. Uh, I don't know that that would be a bad thing. Now, that said, if you want to know why, uh, it, it's largely a function uh, of, I think, of, of education and the fact that low-skilled labor in, in this country is no longer a particularly uh, cost-effective 
a way to make a living. I mean, we, we've become a place where you need skills to exist in the global marketplace that we have. You can't very well you know, drop out of high school anymore and get a job that's going to support your family. And so I, the focus really, I think, needs to be on the education levels to raise people up. But, uh, but uh, beyond that, you know, Bill Gates can make all the money he wants, and I don't care. I, I don't agree with that. Uh, <laughs> should I stop there? Uh, and it, I, I think that there, there are a couple of sort of intertwined points here. It seems to me everybody, uh, first of all, I don't want to be confiscatory. I'm not talking about uh, making everybody the same and so on. I mean, there's, there's whether you call it disparity or whatever you call it, uh, we're going to have that, and it's all right. It's, it is fine, uh, but only up to a point. Because I think everybody in this country has a responsibility to, to contribute to this being a successful society. And included in that society is the cost of the infrastructure that we need to have, the, the roads, uh, the, 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 uh, all of the different uh, things that, that make us functional, and including the financial infrastructure. Uh, and I think that what happens to uh, some people, and I'm, I'm not obviously talking about each and every person because they earn their money in different kinds of ways, or get it in certain kinds of different, earn is an interesting word, but, but um, I think it's a civic responsibility to participate. Uh, you know, if you want to go and get rich uh, in, in certain countries and other parts of the world, you basically can do it if you're a crook. But, you, but honestly, it's, it's not there to be able to do it because they don't have that, that societal framework that we have. Secondly, we're in terrible trouble, and I think these are interlocking points. We're in terrible trouble fiscally in this country, and I think that, that well, it won't get us all the way there in terms of solving our fiscal problems, that we have to have uh, tax receipts from everybody all the way up to the top uh, in, including the 1% or the small group who just got the Bush tax cuts extended uh, for them. Uh, and so uh, to, to at least that extent, I'm very disturbed about the inequality. Dr. Siles? Uh, I am also uh, disturbed by it for I could give a whole lecture on this, so I'm sitting here debating <laughs> which points to make. But um, first of all, you know, the research that's been done by Piketty and Saez, who were the sort of authorities on this, uh, shows that most of the growth uh, in the American economy has, in recent decades, gone to the top 1 percent of the population. And when you have so much growth going to such a tiny share of the population, it's hard to keep the economy healthy. Uh, we need a broad middle class because they're the ones who spend. and. If the middle class isn't spending, then um, businesses aren't selling their goods and they aren't hiring their people, and then we have unemployment and the kind of problems we have right now, uh, which certainly doesn't help the poor, uh, comes back to bite them in a very uh, big way. Now, during the um, uh, late 90s and early part of this decade, um, the middle class got by by borrowing a lot. They maxed out their credit cards. They refinanced their mortgages. They used their uh, home equity like a piggy bank. 
And then we got all these subprime mortgages and then the whole story that you all know well. So there is a connection between inequality, in my mind, and the health of the overall economy. Uh, second point, Warren uh, Buffett often makes the point that he pays a lower tax rate on his income than his secretary does. That's just plain wrong in my view. Uh, third point is I think your relative income, not just your absolute income, matters. Uh, the poor in the United States, even though you know $15,000, $20,000 a year doesn't sound very much, it's a fortune compared to what uh, two-thirds of the world's population has. But uh, we all measure how we feel about ourselves, how we feel about our society, and how we function and what we're expected to have in our lives by comparing ourselves to our neighbors and peers. And so you can't say the American poor are affluent by international standards um, uh, and then turn around and say, therefore, we don't need to do anything. One of the reasons we need to do something about it is because we have the wherewithal. We have all of the money that those taxpayers uh, at the very top of the income distribution could be providing uh, to get the deficit down, to fund some investments, I'll use the word, um, and to perhaps, uh, you know, do something for the group we're talking about here. Uh, let, let me just make a couple of quick responses to the, uh, on a couple of these points. Uh, first, in terms of our, our fiscal situation, uh, according to the CBO, if we don't do anything right now, federal spending will reach 43 percent of GDP by the middle of the century. Uh, if we, we could not possibly raise taxes enough to have, and if we could, would we still want, really want the federal government taking half of everything that's produced in this country, consuming half of it? I mean, spending uh, has its own drawbacks, irrespective of whether it's financed through debt or taxes. As Milton Friedman say, the real cost of government is the cost of spending. It's not, it doesn't matter which way, way it's financed. Second, the rich already pay a disproportionate share of taxes in this country. If you look, I believe the numbers are the top 1 percent earn about 20 percent of the income and pay about 40 percent of the income taxes. I mean, they, they already pay almost double proportionately their share of income uh, when it comes to taxes. And finally, you know, the rich aren't a bunch of people who have inherited their money in this country. The vast majority of, of, of the rich in this country are people, are first generation. They're people who earned their money, and they generally earned it to provide providing goods and services that make life better for all of us. Bill Gates has done more to eliminate poverty in this country, uh, in the world, than almost any government program you can think of. And I don't mean just by the charitable donations he's made. I mean by the fact that what computerization has done to improve productivity, give people a chance to earn a living, create jobs, all of that has done far more reducing poverty than any government program could. I want lots of Bill Gates's out there. And that means we need to create the incentives for them to earn, and that means keeping what they earn. Just one quick counterargument on that. I don't believe and I don't think the evidence supports that Bill Gates did what he did just because he would make a fortune from doing it. He would still have made a fortune. Right. Uh, at this point, we're going to open up the Q&A to the audience. Uh, we ask three things. Uh, wait for the mic. Introduce yourself and make sure your question is actually in the form of a question. <laughs> so I'll kick it off with the uh, guy in the blue shirt in the back corner there. Uh, hi, my name is William Hill. I'm actually a former student at the Georgetown Law Center. And uh, my question is for um, Ms. Sawhill, um, or Dr. Sawhill, excuse me. 
Um, you spoke about how we measure ourselves based on how we're doing against our peers and how you can't use international uh, numbers to compare because that's not what most people use to compare themselves. But then in an early argu earlier argument about why the federal government has to uh, take care of welfare uh, payments as opposed to the states, you talked about how some states are more affluent than others. But doesn't this, the same fallacy apply if, if we let each state decide what their poverty level was going to be and you know how they were going to handle it, you could say that each state could then decide what, you know, who among them they were going to say was the poverty level. So how do you how do you make an arbitrary distinction between, well, our country has to pick a poverty level for ourselves and forget all the rest of the world, but then states have to have one standard across the board? Uh, well, you make a good argument, and there is, and it is arbitrary, uh, and uh, one just has to, in the end, have some common sense definition of uh, who uh, people compare themselves to. I actually believe that now that we are um, becoming a more globalized uh, uh, world in terms of communications, you know, everybody's on the internet, everybody's tweeting, uh, it, people in. <coughs> Poor countries, you know, very, very poor countries around the world now can see how the advanced world lives. Uh, and that does uh, uh, change the, the argument in a way that I haven't quite figured out um, what I think. Uh, because the ultimate conclusion, if you said, well, we're comparing ourselves people are comparing themselves to everybody worldwide, then we should stop spending any money on the poor in the U.S. and ship it all to people in Bangladesh or wherever, right? So uh, it's a very difficult question in my mind. But, well, there, but there is some research that we could get into if we had time. And there are also, I don't want to go on at length, but, but there's a, embedded in the question is what are the things that we think are attributes of national citizenship and what are the things that we think are attributes of state citizenship? And you can see where I'm going with that. Um, well, I heard in your speech that you were saying that um, children, are, um, children being taken care of, of welfare went down from 60% to like 21%. Yes. Um, well, of poor children. Yeah, of poor children. What are those chances of those kids seeing that their parents aren't working and they're getting money from the government and they see that their parents don't have to do anything, they just have to sit around and basically collect money from the federal government? What are their possibilities of them repeating the yeah. same habits as their parents? Well, uh, my... Uh Basic point is that working is better than being on welfare. So uh, the policies that we ought to have are not to have people sitting around and receiving welfare from forever. Uh, and and I, I, I probably all three of us agree uh, about that. Maybe the way we would do it would differ uh, in the details. So, so I kind of reject the premise. And you should understand, just to give you a number of, of how this plays out, uh, and, and one of the reasons why um, it goes back to this extreme poverty point that I made a number of times. In 1991, 12% of poor women, uh, women living bo below the poverty line, had no job and no welfare, uh, 12%. 
in 2007, it was 34%. I mean, the problem is that we've pushed people off of welfare. I gave you the Wyoming number, but as I also said there are lots of other states where this is. And we really haven't, uh, even before the recession, we really haven't uh, done enough to, to uh, pursue the idea that people ought to be out there working and that w whatever help they need, because actually, uh, if you look at the welfare roles, particularly as they have shrunk, these are people who have uh, issues that need to be dealt with in many, many cases. Uh, and they need, whether it's skills, whether they need, uh, they have uh, uh, depression, which a large number of people have chronic depression, various kinds of things that will help them to get into the labor force if they are dealt with. So I, I think you're making a generalization that I don't agree with. They talk about how their um, their parents get food stamps and they get this and they get that and they're proud of it, and they say, "I look forward to this." It's not it's not just a generalization. I see it every day when I go home. I see kids who are doing the same things, who having kids, kids after kids, just to get food stamps, get higher welfare, get all the other stuff. Well, I, you know, I can't tell you what you see, but but I will tell you that where we have gone in this country about cash assistance is that we have greatly reduced. Now, you're talking about the District of Columbia? Are you? Huh? Are you talking about the District of Columbia? No, I'm not talking about that. Oh, okay, because there is a, there, we do have a, a discussion to be had about actually the TANF program in D.C. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know where home is, and, and you, you know, I accept that you say that you see these things. All I can tell you is that I, you and I agree on something, which is fundamentally that people who can work ought to be working. Um, Chip says we have a, a question from online. Yeah, we've, we've had a pretty lengthy discussion on here. People have brought up the, the broken window fallacy from Friedrich Bastiat. Uh, and the most succinct question is from uh, Carlos Alfaro. He asked, does consumption create wealth? That was mentioned several times by several people. No. I mean, I mean essentially, consumption consumes wealth. To, to, I mean... <laughs> Uh, what you want to have is is, is some value added to it at, at some at some point, which I guess goes back to my Bill Gates question. You, what you need to have, what you want to do is create prosperity. What you want to do is create more productivity in society to give people more skills, so or, or uh, a way in which they can do more and create more and create more wealth in society. If you simply have the same piece of pie, uh, same size pie, and you're simply slicing it up differently, uh, that's not a very good recipe. I mean, we, you can argue forever about who should get which size piece of pie. What you really want to do is grow that pie, and then that, that makes everybody uh, less hungry. It stemmed, to give some context, it stemmed from uh, Dr. Soil's point um, that rich people aren't spending their money, and we need to encourage them to do so. Right now, because we have such high unemployment, is my point about that. Uh, you know, Bill Gates can produce all the iPads he wants or all the iPhones or whatever, uh, but if nobody's buying them because they're unemployed, uh, then uh, he's not going to be able to sell them, no matter what his uh, capacity Steve is. Jobs. 
Steve Jobs. Oh. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. <laughs> Bill Gates doesn't produce many iPads, so. Sorry. That's right. <laughs> I stand corrected. Uh, right up here. Bill Gates wishes. <laughs> Bill Gates wishes. <laughs> this is another question for Dr. Sawhill. Um, what is opportunity in the U.S. and how does it compare to other advanced countries? What is what is what? What is opportunity in the U.S.? You mentioned it during your speech. And how does it compare to other advanced countries? And uh, what are major policy differences that might affect this? Goodness, that's uh, like asking me for um, another lecture. But uh, um, opportunity means the uh, chances that you have to move up the ladder uh, from where your parents were, or move down for that matter. And in the United States, if you're born in the middle class, uh, born to parents in the middle class, you have about an equal chance of moving up the ladder or down the ladder from where your parents were. If you're born in the bottom 20% of all parents, to, to the bottom 20% of all parents, then you're very likely to stay there. And ditto, if you're born rich, you're very likely to stay there. So we call that stickiness at the tails of the distribution. Uh, and we have a lot more of that kind of stickiness in the U.S. than in some other advanced countries. And I think I talked earlier about uh, our ideas for dealing with that. It goes back to that three-legged stool or that four-legged chair. Got some questions in the back. Right there in the, the front row on the right side. Phil Craigle from the uh, Koch Foundation. Uh, Dr. Sawhill, you mentioned, um, as everyone else did, the uh, safety net issue. And typically, the GOP's uh, bullet point characterizing uh, the government's role um, as a uh, safety net for people that need help um, isn't the usual case. But the re GOP response to the State of the Union by Paul Ryan mentioned uh, that the government's role was primarily to have, have a safety net uh, factor in their, uh, their, their role. And I'm curious, what was y'all's, um, I guess, reaction to uh, a non-typical um, answer that uh, doesn't usually come out from the, the GOP like that? Uh, I think that um, Paul Ryan is the uh, up-and-coming star in the Republican Party. Uh, he is an idea person. He put uh, forward a very courageous roadmap for how we could get our fiscal house in order over the longer run, although it takes him forever to get to a budget balance, and he runs up enormous uh, debt in the meantime. However, uh, he has some interesting ideas. And I listened very carefully to his response to the State of the Union address. I was disappointed uh, about how nonspecific he was, um, because he's been specific in the past. And my interpretation, uh, for whatever it's worth, which may not be much, is that he was under wraps from the leadership of the party not to say anything specific. I don't know if that quite addresses your question about the safety net, but I'm not quite sure what he said about the safety net. He didn't necessarily describe the safety net. He just said that the government's role was to be a safety net, um, uh, so to speak. Well, I think then he was agreeing with me and uh, maybe with all of us. <laughs> Thank you. 
And uh, we have time for one last question in, in the back there. That's really a question for you. <laughs> Brer, uh, George Mason University. This question is for the whole panel. If you could pick one thing, one thing that you could have the government do or not do to uh, reduce poverty, what would that be? Preschool education. Uh, I, I don't think there's any evidence that preschool education helps. What I would do is give more, uh, I, I, I guess I would give more parental choice uh, and create more competition in the schools to create a better educational system. Uh, this would not be the first time that I said that I uh, do not accept one answer questions uh, about what to do <laughs> about poverty, because my whole point is that this is complicated stuff. Um, so, you know, I could give you a simple answer, which is make sure that everybody has enough income so that they're, uh, there you go. But, you know, it, the, the fact is that if we're going to give everybody uh, income in the form of cash, that's actually a bad idea. Uh, that's about all the time we have for, unfortunately. I know there's a lot more questions, but uh, we invite you to continue the discussion upstairs um, over some uh, drinks and snacks. And I'd like to thank uh, Chip Bishop, who really helped put on this event, our conference department, and the DC Forum for Freedom. And most especially, if we can give another round of applause for our excellent panelists. <laughs>